You'd like to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. And we're going to be looking at God's plan for Israel. And again, it's God's plan. It's not Israel's plan. (laughs) It's God's plan. Right now, Israel is a disobedient, apostate nation. They are not under the protection of God, although they are being preserved by God. That's an important distinction. They are not protected. If they were protected by God, the Holocaust would never have happened. But they are being preserved. And one day, the remaining part of that nation will turn to, turn to Christ. It will be at the end of the tribulation period. It will be at the time when Christ finally comes back and they will look upon him whom they have pierced. But again, those are the promises of God. A college man walked into a photography studio with a framed picture of his girlfriend. He wanted the picture duplicated. This involved removing it from the frame. In doing this, the studio owner noticed the inscription on the back of the photograph, and this is what it said on the back. My dearest Tom, I love you with all my heart. I love you more and more each day. I will love you forever and ever. I am yours for all eternity. Signed, Helen. But then it continued on with a P.S. And if we ever break up, I want the picture back. (laughs) You know, (laughs) I think it's obvious that she was not completely committed to the relationship. Pretty superficial. But when it comes to God, he is completely committed to the relationship, actually, of of two people. Not only of his bride, Christ's bride, completely committed to us, and when we stand in Christ's righteousness, when we have received Christ as our Savior and as our Lord, as we commit ourselves to him, and by the way, we commit ourselves to him because he has given us the, the gift of faith, That's what Ephesians 2 says. He has given us the gift of repentance. That's what 2 Timothy says. But as he has given us those, and we we have committed ourselves to him, which is, again, the new birth, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou, thou shalt be saved, he has also committed himself to us. And because that faith was given by God, it'll never stop. That's why faith... And belief is always in the present tense. We continue to believe. True believers continue to believe. And again, sometimes you see people fall away. They never had the true faith because they never had a faith given by God that would endure. But again, God is faithful to his people. That's why when he comes back, second coming, faithful and true. He is faithful and true. But not only is God faithful to his church, Christ's church, but he is faithful to the covenants and to the people of Israel, okay? And again, we, we saw this couple uh, messages ago that we were speaking on as far as uh, Genesis chapter 12. Again, a couple messages ago, uh, this is where it all starts. It's called the Abrahamic Covenant. This is very important. There's a lot of stuff resting on the Abrahamic Covenant. If this isn't fulfilled, then quite honestly, I, I don't know how we can expect that the things given to the church are going to be fulfilled. Because it's either God is truthful, he knows, and he's powerful enough to accomplish it, or he isn't. So again, what he promised to Abraham is very, very important. And again, if you're there, it's Genesis 12. Keep your hand on Romans 11. We'll be there in just a couple minutes. But if you want to turn there, Genesis 12. Now, now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of the country from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation, and I'll bless you. Uh, you and make you a great name and you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and I'll curse those who curse you and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So he gives the, 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 the promise, the covenant. And again, it's repeated in Genesis chapter 14. It says, I will, and you, you're going to keep seeing these I wills, I will. I'm going to do it. Okay. Again, Genesis chapter 14, verses 16 thereabouts, all that. And then he ratifies, remember how we went through the whole process where Abraham uh, got the animals, he cut them in half, but it was God who walked through. It wasn't Abraham. He was fast asleep because 
This is a unilateral, unconditional, sovereign, elective covenant, if you will. This is God saying, I will. And all the powers of hell, and I mean that seriously, cannot stop this covenant. Now, if you, uh, could you put up that? And again, the chart, I think, helps illustrate that with Abrahamic covenant, there's a land, seed, and blessing, but then you see these expanded in the Palestinian covenant, the Davidic in 2 Samuel, and the new, which is Jeremiah 31, will be there in a moment. I'm just reviewing because I want you to make sure we understand why we're going through. So he ratifies it in, in saying, okay, it is I who am going to do this. Genesis chapter 17, Genesis 17, we find that this covenant is not to Ishmael, the older brother. It's to Isaac. He's the son of promise. And it's an everlasting covenant. It says it right there in Genesis 17. We looked at that extensively. So it's not going to end. Which means this. Man's sin and sinfulness cannot stop this covenant. I see that's where many Christians who are of the amillennial bent are saying, oh, no, no, the sin of the people um, stop the promise of God. No, 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 it's an everlasting. It's an everlasting. So again, it was confirmed uh, in, uh, in, in uh, Genesis 17 with, in, that it was Isaac. It was then uh, confirmed to Isaac himself when he became older. We won't turn there, but in Genesis 26. And then it confirmed again to Jacob, which would be Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, his grandson. Same covenant, pieces of it. You know, in other words, I'm still going to work through you. <laughs> you know what I like about this? He is given this promise to sinful patriarchs. Now get that. They weren't perfect. In fact, in the midst of these, uh, the confirming of the covenant, God shows us the imperfection of the people. Either it's Abraham lying or how Jacob is responding to the angel of the Lord. The whole point is, is that these are imperfect patriarchs. It's not based on their obedience. <coughs> That's 2,000 years ago. Abraham, Abrahamic covenant is given. A thousand years later, it's Second Samuel, oh, not up there, but Second Samuel seven, and in the expansion of the Abrahamic covenant is given to David, and we find out that it's going to be an eternal kingdom with a king. But again, a thousand years later, from where Abraham, Abraham two thousand BC, now it's David, thousand. And then, and then we saw that even. You know, so, so we say, okay, uh, God wanted to promise, but, but surely God is not going to keep His promise to a sinful nation. I mean, what happened? Um, Israel split because of idolatry and ungodliness, and you know, you had the northern tribes, southern tribes, northern tribes first go away in the Assyria, with the Assyrians, and then the, the southern tribes, the Babylonians come in, and they actually deport them back to Babylon. Surely that's and yet, in the midst of their exile, and again, if, if you have your hand in Romans, you can go to Jeremiah chapter 31, because this is in the midst of the, in the midst of the exile. It's when they're in the, not in the land, in, in a foreign land, because of their disobedience, because of their idolatry, that God through Jeremiah says in verse 31, 31, 31, Behold, the days are coming, they're not here now, but the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Very specific. Not talking about... See, people say, well, that's the church. That's not the church. The house of Israel and the house of Judah. It's literal. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them. Okay, but what did he say? But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. After those days, yeah, they had to go into captivity. And then in 70, when, uh, 70 AD, after Christ's death, resurrection, even the temple, and they were dispersed again. But God says, wait a second. But I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. I don't know how anybody can look at that and say, well, that's kind of unclear. <laughs> okay. Later on in verse, but I will put my law... Okay, no, no, excuse me. Um, go down to um, 
Because we find out that this new covenant, the end of verse 34, and I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. That's the new covenant. That's because when Christ came, He was able to completely take away sin. It's not going to be based on their obedience. It's going to be based on God's power. That's how this is going to be, as it were, pulled off. Okay, and how this is going to be accomplished. It's not going to be based on their power. So, this is the point. Obedience is not the condition that determines fulfillment. It's not obedience that, that uh, is the condition that determines fulfillment. Divine sovereignty is. Okay? See, the whole point of this is that he, the, the power of hell <coughs> is going to try to get God not to be able to fulfill his covenant. Power, what do you mean power of hell? Well, that get the Israelites to be disobedient. Get them, just get them to be killed. I mean, I think when, when Hitler tried to annihilate the Jews, that's, that was not just Hitler, that was Satan. Okay? All in the plan of God, obviously. But again, going back to Jeremiah, it was in the midst of their disobedience that God said, I, they are still my people and I still have a plan for them. Very, very important. Now, again, if God is saying that, that's what's riding on this fulfillment of these covenants. Is God truthful? Is he faithful? Does he have a purpose? And is he powerful enough to accomplish it? God's integrity is at stake. So this is not one of those issues where we just say, well, you know, just kind of come up with whatever you want to believe about the end times. You know, if you believe it's the church, that's fine. If you believe it's Israel, that's... No, no, no. God's integrity is at stake. When he said, I will, is he powerful enough to accomplish it? Or is it just like, you know, fast and loose when it comes to Old Testament, or, uh, you know, uh, end time prophecies? No, no. God's integrity is at stake, and sin and sinners do not derail <laughs> the plan and purpose of God. Sin and sinners cannot derail it. We've got to keep saying it, cannot derail it. Now, again, the other reason why we want to study, there's a lot of reasons I was giving you. But the reality is, if we don't get Israel right, we will not get uh, eschatology, the, uh, the, uh, the, the end times right. Okay, That's why we spend so much time on this. If you don't get Israel right, it's almost, it's almost futile to try to go to Revelation. Because it will, everybody will speak a different language when it comes to the different interpretation. When it comes to looking at Revelation, if you don't, first of all, get Israel right. In other words, getting Israel right means this. God still has a plan and purpose for that nation. And therefore, as we look at Revelation starting next week, chapter 6, we're going to start saying, oh, that's why he mentions Israel. Oh, that's why he mentions the Jews. Oh, that's why they're escaping. Oh, I see. And see, you're going to start seeing. And Israel's a major key in understanding the book of Revelation, the end times. <coughs> so we have to know, we have to get Israel right. Now, some would say this. Okay, 2,000 years ago, Abraham. Yeah, that was a promise. Oh, I, I can see it um, reiterated with David. You know, I, I can buy in all that. But wait a second here. Israel rejected their king. Are you sure, John, that after Christ's death, that Israel was no longer in the plan and purpose of God? I mean, are you sure that that's not the right interpretation? Are you sure that Israel is still part of the plan and purpose of God? And for that, we want to go past the resurrection to Romans chapter 11. Do you see why we're doing that? See, we can say in the Old Testament for sure, yeah, God had a plan for Israel. David, God had a plan for Israel. Well, wait, after David, the divided kingdom, the Babylonian captivity. Okay, Jeremiah 31, even in the captivity, God was still saying, I'm going to do it for this people. But now let's go past the time when Christ came, their king, and what did Israel do to their king? They didn't receive him as king, they actually crucified him. So now we've got to go to Romans chapter 9, because if we can answer the question after, if something was written after the resurrection, okay, after the ascension, after the church began, if, if this has been addressed, then we can for sure say, oh no, God still has a plan and purpose for Israel. 
And again, I believe that you see that very clearly in Romans chapter 11. Now, Romans is the quintessential book on doctrine. Uh, chapters 9 through 11, some would say was a parenthesis. Actually, it's not a parenthesis. He's, he's showing election here. And he's using Israel as the example. And so he declares election in chapter 9. He applies election in chapter 10, none of which are we, going to look, are we going to look at. Someday we'll go through a whole series on Romans. If the Lord doesn't return, and I'm still healthy, <laughs> and you still want me. Okay, but the point is, <laughs> otherwise I'll do it with some other... No. Uh, no. Um, by the way, thank you for being gracious and having me around for, what, almost 30 years? Donna, can you imagine that? Almost 30 years. <laughs> I see Donna and Lee because... Only a few of you remember me when I was in 1985. In fact, some of that I want to forget because <laughs> I did a lot of foolish things. Okay. Anyways, I don't know why I'm taking that. Well, Bob Baker took a real long rabbit trail this morning in ABF, so I could take a little rabbit trail here. It was good, though, Bob. Okay. Question is, has God rejected Israel as a nation? Well, look at what Paul says. I say then, has God cast away his people? Now again, as you're following through, the people are, is Israel. Okay, I mean, that's just, we don't have a lot of time to, but that is, I mean, he's going to keep going about Israel. Okay, but, but that's, the, that's the first of three questions. We're going to answer three questions, hopefully in about 20-some minutes. Three questions. And the first major question is this, that Paul brings up. Because see, he knows what's in the Roman Christian mind. As he taught about election, and as he's been applying it, now he's asking the question, he's getting to the point. Oh, sure, Christians are elect, but what about Israel? What about the promises? I mean, these Gentile Christians would be thinking, well, you know, what about Israel? <coughs> and so Paul says, has God rejected Israel? And, and, and notice what he says, certainly not. God forbid, how could you ever think that? Not because they were a good people, but because of who's God, the character of God. How could you ever say that? If you believe that God made the promises, why would you ever say that God would then negate and delete those promises? And what Paul does is, in answering this question, he gives three evidences. Okay. Now again, if you ask the majority, and I'm going to say that if you ask the majority of Christians around the world, true Christians, has God abandon Israel as a nation. You know what the answer is? Yes. If you don't believe, if you believe that Israel is still on the, in, the, um, in the picture, then you're actually in the minority. I want you to know that. Because the majority of Christians have said, yes, God has abandoned that nation. They were apostate. They're still apostate. God has abandoned them. It's called replacement theology. It's where Israel is no longer on the scene. Israel has been replaced by what? The church, okay? Replacement theology. And, the, and yet, Paul didn't believe that. Again, he says, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. Well, let me give you the first evidence. It's the second part of verse 1. For I also am an Israelite. He, his first evidence is this. I've been converted. <coughs> Paul says, I've been converted. Remember, Paul was... Uh, an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. I mean, he was a Jew of Jews. He wasn't a proselyte that came in as a Gentile. He was a Jew. Not only a Jew, but a tribe of Benjamin, which, by the way, was the other faithful tribe. When the, when the tribe split and there was two in the southern, Benjamin was one. And, but he was, he's, a, he's a Jew. But, but remember what happened with Paul. You know, I mean, at first he was a Pharisee. He persecuted the church. The word is he ravaged the church. That's a very severe term. He was, destroy he was seeking to destroy the church when his name was Saul, right? Then he had the, you know, on the road, and Christ came, and he said, Lord. I mean, but he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, a proud, arrogant. He was depending on the law. He hated Christians. He hated the Christians' God. He hated Jesus, again, before conversion. So what's Paul's point? Well, look at me. I'm a Jew, and look at the, the mercy that God had on me. 
I mean, if God could save the greatest Christ-rejecting Jew, which was Paul, certainly is not through saving other Jewish Christ-rejectors. That's his point. That's what... So even in Romans chapter 1, remember that uh, very familiar verse? For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. What? Everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and then to the Greek. See, Jew, even in that little sin, okay, the Jew is still on the table. Now, some would say, well, that's just individual Jews. Well, Paul's just setting up his argument. He's saying, listen, if you think God is completely done with the Jew, just look at me, I'm a Jew. I was a Christ hater, but God had mercy on me. Which I think we have to, as we come into the table, right, we have to remember, where were you before Christ? No hope. No, uh, no understanding. Now, you might have been religious, and you were going to church, and you thought somehow that was going to earn your way. But then there came that day, if you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, that you recognize that your works and your goodness wasn't goodness at all. It's as like Isaiah says, filthy rags. And your eyes were open to the fact that the only hope of forgiveness and salvation and, and being united with God and his family was what? Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And it became like, yeah, that's right. Like, why didn't I get that before? Because your spiritual eyes had not yet been opened. And you received Christ, right? That's Paul. I mean, he was bent on destroying, and yet when the light came and his understanding came, he received Christ. I mean, we need to come to the table with a very grateful heart. Well, how about the second evidence? Paul says, well, no, the Jew is still on the table. There's still, it's still gonna, it's something for the nation. And he uses the chosen remnant. Now, when I say remnant, I'm talking about an elect minority of Jewish people are always being saved. In other words, there's never a time in history where on this earth there was no Jew that had not believed in Christ. There's always a remnant. This is very, very important. There's always a Jewish remnant that is truly a true Jew as we saw in in Romans. Uh, two. In other words, a true Jew, a true Jew, not just ethnically, not just racially, <coughs> but, <coughs> <excuse me> <coughs> but, <coughs> but actually has received their Messiah. Always will be. Always will be. And so he, he uses that, the, the, the fact of the, the remnant. God has not cast away his people, verse 2, whom he foreknew. And the word foreknew. Many say foreknew just means, well, knew beforehand. Actually, that's not the purpose of the word foreknew. It, it has to do with this, a predetermined and pre-planned love relationship. So when he says, you know, he predestined and foreknew us, he's talking about he put, he, he put his love on us in the sense of, I have chosen and elected and they will be mine. That's the, that's the, the thought. It's like in Amos chapter 3 when it says, you only, Amos 3, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. What do you mean, you only? What, Paul, or what God is saying through the prophet, Old Testament promise, uh, prophet Amos is the fact that I have known you, talking to the Jews, beyond all the other nations that are out there. In other words, there was all these nations, but he says, I have known you. I have set my love on you. That's what it means to foreknow. He sets his love on certain. If you're a believer, it means in eternity past, God foreknew you. He set his affection and his love on you. That is very important. It's not like we just stumbled into Christ. It's because you have been chosen. And I know that's a very hard word. A lot of people don't like that word. What do you mean chosen? It means this, we should all be damned. That's just the bottom line. We should all go to hell. It's just that God is rescuing. Why? Because he has set his affection on some. It really is only some. That's how the Bible always says it. Predetermining, pre-planned love relationship. And, and, and you see this. Look at it. He gives an Paul gives an illustration. Uh, second part of verse 2, or do you not know that the, what the Scripture says about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? I mean, remember, you know, Elijah gets frustrated, he gets depressed, and he's actually pleading on, uh, not on Israel's behalf. I mean, he's just, you, you know how you get really, uh, you can say really foolish things when you get angry and depressed? Well, think about this with the Elijah, okay? 
And look at what he says. Lord, they have killed your prophets. That's Israel. And torn down your altars. And I alone am left. And, and they seek my life. And again, this is the great prophet Elijah. God's spokesman to Israel. And this is in, during one of the darkest days of Israel. I mean, dark, dark spiritual days of Israel. The, the king that was uh, reigning at the time was Ahab. And his pagan wife was whom? Jezebel. I mean, you never name a child Jezebel. You might name a dog that if you really hate the dog. But the point is, you know, I mean, just get the picture, Jezebel. And the nation, again, had rejected the Lord, instituted the worship of Baal, right? That's, that was the official religion. They were in rebellion. They were idolatrous. They were stubborn. They were wicked. And that's where, that's where this comment comes from back in the Kings. Lord, they have killed your prophets, torn down your altars, I alone and left. But, but look at verse 4. But what does the divine response say? I have reserved, what? For myself, 7,000. That's the remnant. See, all of Israel. No, I still have 7,000. See, you know what Elijah was trying to get God to do? Destroy them. They're wicked. They're stubborn. Destroy them. No, no. I have 7,000. See, what's the point? Elijah the great prophet desired God to destroy Israel in judgment. God's heart was tender towards them. God was reaching out to Israel with his grace and mercy. You know why we come to the conclusion that God, some people come to the conclusion that God no longer has a plan for Israel? Because we think in human terms. That's really what it is. See, human terms says this. You do what I want, you're going to be blessed. You do what I don't want, you're going to be crushed. That's not God's. No, no. no. His ways are not our ways. All right? God, and by the way, that's also true in the, in the immediate present, right? I mean, we like to think, you know, let's get the problem taken care of right now. But God is patient. God is gracious. God is kind. And so Paul gives a second evidence, and that's the chosen remnant. And how about, let's just look at the last one. Oh, oh, I better not move on. Look at verse 5. This is a conclusion. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant. According to the election of grace. See, there are some Jews, again, this is Paul writing first century, because they were elected by grace. They are, by the way, we know as, as of Acts 2, what? They are part of the church, the church age. So in the church, you're always going to find mostly Gentiles, but some Jews. <coughs> But then he answers another important question in verse 6. How did they get saved? Was it by good works? In other words, did the Jews come into the church? Do Jews get saved throughout all of time through works or faith? And we find this. What? How about Abraham? Abraham believed God and what? And it was accounted him for righteousness. Okay, faithful Abraham. It was faith. We find that repeated. <laughs> James chapter uh, 2, and what, uh, Romans chapter 4? Nope. Faith, faith, faith. And, and he actually emphasizes it right here. How, does, how do the Jews, how does Israel, how do those remnant get saved? And if by grace, then it's no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it's of works, it's no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. Okay, so it's by grace. They don't come in a different way. It's because of grace. It's always because of grace. So that was the second evidence that God is still has a plan for Israel. And then finally, the condition of Israel, verse 7, that's the third evidence, the condition. What then? Israel has obtained what it seeks. No, excuse me. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks. Israel as a nation has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, the elect, the remnant. And the rest were blinded. <coughs> so we find out, oh, okay. So Israel as a nation were blinded and that, that word blinded or hardened is a very interesting word. We get our word uh, paralysis from it. It's poru. It's paralysis or callous. Think of a callous. You know, some of you have really rough hands because you work, you use your hands all day, and you have callous, which means that you, you become insensitized to, to even pain. You know, you can, a guy with a lot of calluses can pick up something real hot and not feel it. Why? Because it's, it's, it, it, it desensitizes the, the, the hot. Right? Well, that's what he's saying with, spiritual, with the Israel. Their eyes, their spiritual eyes were, 
had callous on them. Okay? They were blinded. They had spiritual insensitivity. This is, this is what uh, theologians would call judicial hardness. Right now, Israel as a nation has a judicial hardness. And what do you mean by judicial hardness? I mean, God has hardened Israel, but he has hardened them to the truth only after they harden themselves. I want you to get that. Because some would say, well, that's not fair. By the way, God is not fair. Just, just get that in your mind. It'll solve a lot of problems when you try to interpret Scripture. Because if you think God is fair, he's not. He's not. We should all be in hell. That's not fair. It's not fair that some get rescued and others just go on the way that they deserve. No, no. If it was fair, we would all have to go to hell. Right? Wouldn't that be true? Wouldn't that be true? Okay. So, but the condition of Israel is what? That they have been blinded. Look at verse 8. Just as it is written, and then he goes back to Deuteronomy and also David. God has given them a spirit of stupor. That word stupor uh, comes from the numbness resulting from a sting. A sting. You know, you get sting and it gets numb. That's the, actually the word stupor. They've been numbed to the truth. Eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. That's sad. Isn't that really sad? See, when Jesus Christ came, because they sinned and because of their idolatry and because of their hatred for the truth, they couldn't see Christ when he was right standing in front of them. Not, now remember, it was their sin that caused the hardness, not the rejection that caused the hardness. It was their sin leading up to Christ <coughs> that caused the blindness and the stupor and the eyes that could not see and the ears that could not hear. And then he says, verse 9, and David says, let their table become a snare. What do you mean table? Well, table is where you lay all your, your food out. All the food, all the blessings. Had God been gracious to that nation? Over and over again, the blessings of God had been presented to that nation. That's what he means by the table. All the blessings should have, the blessings should have brought Israel to God. But notice what it says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their backs always. The very things that should have been the source of uh, blessing, <coughs> the source of nourishment to Israel, the table, all the blessings of God, all coming from the hand of God, all should be leading you to Christ, became the occasion for their rejection. What do you mean? I'm saying that unless blessings are received from a grateful heart, they actually drive you away from God. And you see that in, in America right now. Right? It's the blessings. The blessings should drive you to God. But for a hardened heart, blessings actually drive you away from God. Because you get the idea, not you, but a person gets the idea that the blessings came by their strength and by their power, and it only creates pride. It doesn't create humility. Blessing should create humility. You should look at your life. If you are a, by the way, if you're a Christian, you're a blessed person, right? Amen. And it should drive you to Christ. You know what? But when you have a hardened heart, when you have not a sensitive heart to God, you know what many times blessings do? Make you sloppy with your spiritual life. Oh, God will understand. Oh, God must be on my side. Look at all the blessings. Oh, I can freely sin. God must be on my side. I'm okay. Learn the lesson of Israel. Blessings should lead you to God, not away from Him. But I think, I mean, I've even watched in my own life, prosperity sometimes is hard to walk with Jesus. Get the call that you have cancer and you're dead in six months. And most of us would be crying at God's doorstep, right? And your whole priority system changes at that point. Right? Why don't we do that right now while we're healthy? Because the blessing of God many times does not lead us. We don't see God in the midst of blessing. So, but let me say this one more time. Israel's rejection of the Messiah was the end result of the hardness of heart, not the cause of it. Not the cause of it. 
So they needed to, um, they needed to repent. I, I would say there's another application here. Receive truth. Don't play around with it. You know, what are we called to do? Why are we here? Why are we listening? Why are we studying? Why do we open the book every week? Because this is what should be happening in our life. We should have a heart that wants to hearken to God's Word, to learn it, and then to live it. Let, let's say it this way. We should listen to the Word. We should learn the Word. But what, is, what, is, uh, what does Jesus tell His disciples, Matthew 28? Teaching them to observe or obey all things. It's really been hitting me the last couple of weeks. We can be really fat when it comes to the knowledge of God's Word, but are we actually living it out? So we need to listen, to learn, and then to live it out. Let's not be, play fast and loose with God's truth. Okay, Let's see what, because again, Israel did, and they became hardened to it, not sensitized to it. So, is Israel still on, you know, still being, uh, still part of God's plan? Absolutely. Certainly, they have not been cast away. That's, again, verse 1. Let's look at the second question, okay? Now we have to go to verse 11. And all I'm really doing is trying to work our way through this one chapter. I know, one chapter in one (laughs) 30-some minute period of time, yeah. And you're saying, yeah, you're not even going to make it through that. Okay, I got it. We're going to skip over this real quick, okay? Look at verse 11. I say then, have they stumbled? Now he's asking another question. Have they stumbled? Okay, they're rebellious. And the Roman Christian would say, okay, Paul, you just, you just said they're rebellious. There's only a remnant. But now he's going back to the nation. Have they stumbled? Have they, that's the nation. Have they stumbled that they should fall? In other words, have they stumbled beyond recovery? Now, what is the next two words there? Certainly not. If you have uh, a New American, God forbid. How could you ever think that? Well, not because they're a good people. <laughs> they're apostate at the moment. Because God is a good God. That's why Paul would say it. God is good. God is truthful. God is faithful. And so the question asks, well, then what has been accomplished? What, is, what has been accomplished because of their falling? But through their fall, second part of verse 11, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Ah, Israel has just been set aside, not completely, but just set aside for the moment. And the moment's been 2,000 years. But now look at all the Gentiles that are coming in in relationship to Christ. And see, you know what? We are so used to Gentiles coming in because we're all Gentiles that we forget that through the whole Old Testament there was very few Gentiles that came to God. Very few. It wasn't like, no, no. But as they were set aside, see, that shows actually not only the judgment of God on a nation, Israel, but the grace of God to the rest of the world, the Gentiles. So they, Israel was set aside for a moment, but not for good. Why? Salvation of Gentiles. Notice the second thing. That the salvation of Israel <coughs> to provoke them to jealousy. Someday in the future, I believe very soon, well at least seven years away, the Hebrew nation will finally realize the Gentiles are enjoying the blessing of salvation that they had rejected. Gentile Christians should be a pull for unsaved Jews to come to Jesus. That's the point. Our life Our example, our witness should draw them, provoke them to jealousy. You know what jealousy is? I want that! I want that! I want what they have. Well, how about that on salvation? And a Jewish nation looks and says, I want what the Gentiles have! By the way, are you living in such a way that they even want what you have? Look at verse 12. Now if their fall is riches for the world... And their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. And that's referring to the millennial kingdom. When they finally all come back, the, the remaining Jews come back. Now, now look at what's Paul's response in verses 13 to 15. And, and only to say that, just read verse 14. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are, are, are my flesh, Israelites, and save some. 
Again, he's just referring to the remnant. He knows, he knows that the fullness is not coming in yet. I mean, he's not gone through the tribulation. But he's saying that I may provoke to jealousy. Or to say it this way. Let, let me say it this way. As you live the Christian life, don't be a hypocrite. Live for Christ with a full heart. Because your life should be provoking others to want to have what you have. You see what I'm saying? What you have in the Christian life should be obvious to other people. They should see you and say, wow, how is it that you go through those trials? I can't do that. How is it that you have that joy in the midst of those circumstances? How do you have that joy? And that's what Paul means by, I may provoke to jealousy those who are my, are my flesh and save some of them. <coughs> my life should be a magnet to, for people to say, I want what you have. And I trust that you're not a hypocrite. You know what hypocrite says? This is a hypocrite. Hypocrite is this. Live one way here and another way there. I have Christianity. I am a believer. But you wouldn't know it from how I live. No, no. It, it should be obvious. It should be obvious for anyone around you. You're different. You are different. You are marked different. You are not like this world. Oh yeah, you irritate me. You know, that's how the word would say you know, you're fanatical, but you're different. And when they go through their crises, they're going to be looking for someone different. I need help. So that's God's sovereign purposes demonstrated. <coughs> Do you lead the kind of Christian life that can provoke others to believe in Christ? Or are you a secret service Christian? And then finally, final question. Will Israel be restored? We're just going to go back to that one. Will Israel be restored? And in verses 16 and 17, he, he talks about the uh, lump. He uses an analogy of dough and of a tree. You know, a tree, look at that. Verse 17, And if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, don't boast. In other words, he's talking to the Gentiles, don't boast against the branches. Don't boast. Don't think that you're somehow better than the Jewish nation. It's just that they've been set aside, broken off, so that you might be grafted in. Don't, don't, don't boast. Actually, that's what the church of Jesus, uh, that's what the church, I'm talking church, not true church, I'm just saying the church has done. Israel's out, we're in. Israel's been replaced by the church. By the way, do you know where uh, replacement theology comes from? Israel out, church is in. It actually came, it started with Augustine. He was a theologian that was uh, heavily picked up on by the Roman Catholic Church. And if you ask me, where does the replacement of Israel find its roots in, the major roots? It's the Roman Catholic Church. Think about this. When did the church ever have altars and priests and sacrifices and all the paraphernalia of the levels, right? That was Israel. When did the church ever, when was the church ever told that? Well, Israel's out. Who does all those things? Roman Catholicism, right? That's why they push it so hard, because they're saying, listen, church, uh, Israel's out. We are the new church. I'm talking Roman Catholic Church. So if you say I'm an amillennialist, just understand you're lining up with Roman Catholicism. That's their doctrine, that's their teaching. Again, I know I'm preaching in the choir. You're saying, I don't believe that. Okay. Don't. God still has a place for Israel. Look at verse 23. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. Okay, again, the possibility of Israel, he's throwing out this tidbit. If, if they stop their disbelief, they're going to be grafted in. And then we finalize in verse 25. The promise of Israel's restoration. For I... Do not, and I'm going to answer four questions. The when, who, why, actually five. The what and the how. When will Israel's blindness end? For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant. Don't be ignorant of this, of this mystery. Mystery is not something hard to understand. Mystery just means that at one point in history, it was unknown to humanity. Always known to God, just not known to humanity. So this is a mystery, but don't be ignorant of this mystery, for God is able to graft them back in, right? Is God powerful enough to bring this nation to himself? So, 
But something's going to have to happen. It's not going to happen until, it's, uh, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. What that is saying is, the fullness of the Gentiles is when every final Gentile that's made up for the church is in, <coughs> the fullness of the Gentiles is done. And, the, that, and that happens uh, at the very end of uh, the church age. So that's the when. But who's the who? Who will end Israel's blindness? <clears throat> Verse 26. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer, that's Christ, will come out of Zion. Christ comes back, and as I've been saying many times, and they will look upon him whom they have pierced. And finally, they will receive the Messiah. Again, that happens at the end of the trib. That happens as uh, Zechariah talks about two-thirds of the Jewish nation is destroyed and killed. So there is carnage. Only one-third actually end up receiving Christ. About the why. Why will Israel's blindness be removed? For this is my covenant with them. That goes right back to the Abrahamic covenant. <coughs> the new covenant. In fact, he even says, not just the Abraham, because he says, when I take away their sins, that's the new covenant. So why will Israel's blindness be removed? Because I have covenanted with them. That's why. It's God that does it. What was the purpose of Israel's blindness? Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. That's the blindness has happened so that others could be brought in, but I still hold to my promise with the fathers. That's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the patriarchs. And final question is, how certain can we be about this? <coughs> how certain? How certain? This is not about spiritual gifts. Verse 29 is talking about Israel. For the gifts and the calling of God are what? What's the next word? Irrevocable. Can't be canceled. Promises are promises. They will be held to. Let me close, and I know I'm completely out of time, and I appreciate your patience. Just three more conclusions, three more applications, if you will. He moves from there by, by ending verse 29 by saying irrevocable. So now his argument is done. But, but look at what he says. He says, for, for as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy, that's the Christians he's writing to, through their disobedience, that's Israel, even so, these also have now be, been disobedient. That through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God is not, has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. <coughs> all who might repent. But notice how many times you see the word mercy. How many times? One, two, three, four. It's all about mercy. Mercy is us not receiving what we ought to receive. We don't get the judgment that we ought to get. <clears throat> and he boy, I can't, I gotta have some water here. Get the water, get the water. Okay. Thank you, Dave. Um, mercy, 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 mercy. I like how one guy said, one of the most amazing concepts often overlooked by Christians is not that Israel will one day be restored, but that so many pagan Gentiles have come to Christ for salvation. When we see the word mercy, look at yourself and say, thank you, Lord. Thank you that we have got mercy. And look at, look at uh, the second uh, application. The mercy of God results in praise. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. His ways past finding out. I mean, every one of those is referring back to God's character and attributes. And I can't believe, Lord, how you've been faithful to me and how you've been faithful to Israel. And the very pinnacle of the whole book is verse 36. Of him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And you know what? When we're in heaven, throughout history, we're going to be looking back. Man, did you see? Look at God's faithfulness, his truth, his perfection. What he said he would do and he did it. That's why all glory goes to him. So mercy should result in our praise. And finally, mercy of God demands a response. And then we get, and sometimes we forget, chapter 12, verse 1, is a continuation of the argument. He said mercy four times. I beseech you therefore, brethren, what? By the mercies of God that you what? Present your bodies a 
based on everything we just did today, it should just be, Lord, my life is yours. My life is yours. Because don't let me be like Israel, where the blessings came and I saw the blessings, and instead of making them go towards you, it made me harden towards you. No, mercy demands a response, and the response for us is that we are living sacrifices. Remember, Old Testament, how did they offer? Animal on the sacrifice, and it was dead. Here, we are living sacrifices. Here, God wants us. And let me read this last thing. A true, true worship is not giving God a percentage. True worship is not giving God a percentage of our money, time, service, spiritual good. That is not true. That's religion. True worship is offering yourself to be used by God at His disposal and for His glory. True worship is this, Lord, I am yours. And in the, uh, in the ABF, they talked about bondservant and slave. And the word is actually slave. We are Christ's slave. Why? Because slaves in the New Testament were what? Bought. And I'm, and I'm, I'm leading right to the communion at this point. <laughs> when it says in 1 Corinthians, make sure that you approach the, the table with a worthy, make sure you're worthy, right? Judge yourself first before you come to this table. I want you to judge yourself. Not only sin. In other words, make sure that there's, there's no un, there is no unrepented sin in your life. Make sure there's no unrepented sin. <clears throat> Make sure there's no sin that you have said, you know what, I'm going to keep this one. <laughs> but I think the other thing that we need to, uh, to come to a, in a worthy manner, you know what else you have to do? Lord, I am yours. There's no percentage. It's not like I'm only going to give you part. See, I think if you approach the table, which says it was bought because of his blood, and you come with an attitude of saying, I'll give you part, but not all. You're not coming like one of his slaves. And yet we were bought with a price. So to come in a worthy manner says, Lord, my whole life is a living sacrifice to you. You do with it as you please. That's not something we think of often. In fact, that's why in most of your Bibles, you don't see the word slave when it comes to the word doulos. You see the word bond serving. You know why? Because the, actually the interpreters have sought to downgrade the harshness of a slave because of 1800s in American history. But the reality is if you're one of his, you're a slave. And if you're a slave of a master, what does that mean? Whatever he wants, you must do. See, we like to say it this way. Well, he's not demanding of us, but he wants us to follow him. No, actually that's wrong. He's the master, we're the slave, and he's actually demanding that you follow him. See, that grates at us. Doesn't that grate at you? What do you mean he's demanding? He's the master. He is, and by the mercies of God we do that. So, go before the Lord. Question one, is there any sin that needs to be repented of? Number two, am I truly a slave of Christ?